Welcome to Museum Life with Carol Bossert. Museums are important whether we work in them, for them, or simply love visiting them. Throughout history, people have collected things and put them on display to enjoy. But today's museums offer much more than rooms filled with stuff. They provide places to learn and share experiences with family and friends, as well as sanctuaries to unplug, rest, and refresh. On today's show, we'll discuss how museums can remain relevant and sustainable, reach out to new audiences, and remain attuned to cultural and technological trends. Now, here's your host, Carol Bossert. Good morning. Welcome to Museum Life. I'm Carol Bossert, and today we're going to be talking about children in museums. Uh, this is actually different than children's museums, and our guest is going to help us understand the difference. I have with me today Sharon Schaefer, who is a museum consultant and a leading expert in the field of early learning and museum education. Uh, I am sure some of my listeners know that she is the founding director of the Smithsonian's Early Enrichment Center and the Smithsonian's Institutions Lab School, where she created a national model focused on museum-based education for children ages six and younger. Uh, Dr. Schaefer received the Smithsonian's Institutions Secretary's Gold Medal for Exceptional Service. She's the only educator to receive this honor. Uh, Dr. Schaefer consults with schools and museums across the the United States and abroad, and she leads workshops on early childhood learning, and she is also the author of Engaging Young Children in Museums, which has recently been published by Left Coast Press, and I am sure you will agree with me after you you listen to Sharon that you will want to get a copy of this book. It is completely very, very useful, and I found it useful not only for working with young children, but it's given me some good ideas of working with with families in general in museum exhibitions. So with that, uh, Sharon, welcome to the program. Thank you for being here today. Thank you for having me. Uh, Sharon, would you please just describe a little bit more about your career trajectory? I just sort of gave the facts, so perhaps you can give a little bit more of the the uh, color commentary. And knowing that we have many listeners who are beginning their museum careers and are in museum studies programs, uh, could you please give me some uh, also information about uh, those turning points in your careers that have really shaped your thinking about museums? Well, I think I always knew that I wanted to be an educator, so that was an easy step. And initially I took the journey of education um, in a very traditional way, going into teaching in public schools. And I think that that's common. I didn't even know or understand the possibilities of working in a museum because I grew up in a small town in Pennsylvania. Uh, and we really had no museums to speak of other than a wonderful historic home um, of one of the presidents. But for me, I had an opportunity um, in 1988 when I moved to Washington, D.C. with my family um, to apply for a position at the Smithsonian. And the only reason that I even did that is that it was recommended to me by an advisor from graduate school. And so when I was hired as the founding director for um, the SEEK program, the Smithsonian Early Enrichment Center, uh, that was my first step into the museum world. And I fell in love with museums and everything that that could offer children and families. So that was really the beginning. Um, when, uh, go ahead, please. Uh, when you think about some of the experiences that really shaped my life, because that was the beginning in 1988, um, that first experience. And what shaped my beliefs and values about museums and learning really came over that next 25 years. And it was all in witnessing the excitement and the passion for learning and for objects and for just experiencing the world in a different way that I saw through the eyes of children. Um, a good example was 
uh, one four-year-old named Devin walked into my office with her mother at the end of the day. And I said to her, Devin, you know, what was it that you did today that was exciting or that you enjoyed? And she said, and she sighed. She said, oh, we saw my favorite painting, Renoir's A Girl with a Watering Can. And she was four. And she was passionate. Um, I remember a little guy named Sam who was three years old. And he and I used to talk about the topiaries, the dinosaur topiaries that used to be on the Constitution Avenue side of natural history. And Sam would say to me, I love that dinosaur topiary. And I mean, he could talk about topiaries because the horticulture people would come and visit our kids and we would talk with them. Anyway, one day he came into my office and he looked at me and he said, I really know that that topiary can't move, but I want it to move. I want it to move. And he was so passionate. He was connecting. Um, you know, another real quick story was how our children in the program really made friends with the people working in with museums, with the artists and the artwork. And I remember a group of two and a half to three year olds that loved Barry Flanagan's The Thinker over at the NGA Sculpture Garden. And whenever they had a little problem they needed to solve in their classroom, the class would go with their teacher over to the National Gallery Sculpture Garden. They would sit by the thinker and they would pose just like he did and think about how to solve their problem. It was real in their lives. And I mean, there are so many stories like that. And I've seen how children's lives have been changed um, because of their experiences when they were young and children who are now adults and doing things in the world that I think wouldn't have even happened had they not had this experience in museums. Those are wonderful stories, Sharon, and they echo, it just reminds me of some of my first stories of working with uh, preschoolers at the University of Utah and uh, the Utah Natural History Museum, and uh, so you're really touching my heart and bringing back some really wonderful memories. Uh, and as we know, children uh, who become involved in museums grow up to be adults who enjoy museums and, and uh, will bring their children uh, because I think they don't, once that passion is ignited, it, it, they, it's never lost. I absolutely agree. So what led you to write this book? Well, I think that in looking back, over the past 25 years and my experiences in museums, I just couldn't get over the fact that the museum culture had changed so much around this audience of young children. When I was first hired in 1988, I commonly heard, well, why would preschoolers ever go into the museum? They have nothing that they could gain from looking at art or from a science museum or a history museum, heaven forbid, take young children to a history museum. And so I was confronted frequently with this notion that young children didn't have a place in the traditional museum. And I saw how this journey changed over 25 years to where we are today, where young children is a growing and thriving audience in many museums, not only in the United States, but around the world. And I'm excited about those changes. But what I believe is necessary is that we need to understand the entire context. We, we need to understand where we are today, where we came from, and what happened to lead to this point and how we can continue to grow. So I want practitioners and other people in the museum who may still be skeptical about young children as learners to really understand the audience and see that it's not just superficial fluff or play that has no meaning. It really is relevant. So I wanted to look back because I'm a little geeky like this. I really love the history of children in museums because people say, oh, well, children have always been a part of museums. Well, they have and they haven't. School-aged children have been a part of museums and, you know, school field trips for more than a century. But the group that I'm talking about, those preschoolers and kindergartners, they really are new in the last 20 years or so. 
Uh, in interesting. So what, what do you think uh, led to that uh, shift other than your, your very, very hard work and effort? Well, I, I think that there have been a number of things that led to that shift. One of them was certainly um, an, a raised level of awareness about early childhood education in general and research being done in the formal side of early childhood education outside of museums where we began to understand more about the learning process. And then in the early 90s, um, brain research that helped us understand, helped the general population understand what teachers intuitively knew for so long. And that's that the early years are significant in learning. And so brain research helped us really know that these rich multi-sensory experiences that children have, have a significant impact on actually not only their learning, but the architecture of the brain, the physical architecture. And that they're creating neurological synapses, connections that become embedded in the brain or part of the brain physiologically, and then continue to have impact in learning over time. So I think those were really important. And that third thing was um, the American Association of Museums, now the American Alliance of Museums, created um, this, this um, document, Excellence in Equity, that said we as a field need to serve a more diverse audience. And they described diversity in many different ways, from cultural diversity to special needs to age diversity. And so with that, young children now had an opening to be part of the museum discussion and audience in a way that they really weren't before. So I think that those ideas, and then certainly pioneers in the field who believed strongly that children had a place in museums, all of these things contributed to where we are today. And I think that it took off um, so that today early learning is a priority. It's something that's being spoken about at the highest levels of society from the White House to the media, to research, to schools. It's no longer just education who's talking about the value of early learning. That's very interesting, and thank you for identifying sort of a number of things uh, in different parts of society that have come together. Uh, and so often, uh, I, and I've, this is a theme that plays out with many of the conversations I have on Museum Life, that there's all, often a convergence of uh, different, different avenues of, of research and thinking, and museums are often then becoming, uh, they're at the center of it. Uh, uh, so I think that that's very, very interesting. Uh, we are going to then take this opportunity to take our first break of two. And when we come back, more with Sharon Schaefer and uh, talking about children in museums. And um, stay tuned. I, I find this just fascinating. Uh, so we will be back. Uh, this is Carol Bossert from Museum Life. Thanks for listening. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Women can live their lives to the fullest and realize their dreams for growth and greatness. Georgine Summers knows. As host of On the Edge, Georgine will give you powerful tools and rules to help you change direction in your life and get rid of the fears that stop you from living your dreams. Stretch your boundaries and become the amazing person you've always wanted to be. On the Edge with Georgine Summers airs live every Wednesday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time, 10 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. In the spirit of Have Couch, Will Travel, Dr. Carol Lieberman creates a haven of sanity in an increasingly insane world. Each day we are bombarded with news of events that have never crossed our wildest nightmares. 
Society is spiraling out of control and everyone is reeling from it. But now there's an answer. The best way to keep sane in this insane world is to tune in to Dr. Carol's Couch on Voice America. Dr. Carol, a certified media psychiatrist, will broadcast live from her Beverly Hills office every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time. Call or log in and get help with whatever is sending you reeling whenever you need a soothing voice to calm and advise you. That's Dr. Carol's Couch every Tuesday at 1 p.m. Pacific time here on America's Voice, voiceamerica.com. If you are interested in real estate in America's largest city or anywhere, be sure to listen for Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco. Although our focus is on Manhattan and other real estate markets in and around New York City, we'll have plenty of information that will help you successfully buy, sell, and close a transaction no matter where you are in the world. Good Morning New York Real Estate with Vince Rocco can be heard every Tuesday at 9 a.m. in New York, 6 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk it gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert, and you're listening to Museum Life. And today I am here with Sharon Schaefer, who has recently authored a wonderful book uh, published by Left Coast Press called Engaging Young Children in Museums. And Sharon, when I read the book, uh, and it, it, it's a very easy read, by the way, you're a wonderful author uh, and writer, but the thing that really struck me, and it, it uh, was... I had expected when I looked at the title that this was going to be a book about the history and the work of children's museums. And it's not about children's museums at all. You're just, you are just, you're actually talking about children, uh, uh, young early learners being welcomed into all sorts of museums. So what, what is the, what's the difference uh, in between uh, children in museums and children's museums? Well, I think there definitely is a big difference. Um, with, I think most people often associate young children with children's museums, and I think that that's pretty normal. But what we really found out when we opened the Smithsonian Early Enrichment Center was that young children could just thrive and grow being in very traditional museums. And I think that my experience with that is what kind of opened my mind to the possibilities. And so while children's museums are designed specifically for children and families, they're developed around the ideas of play, of role play, um, of using the imagination, of process. There's so many different elements that are really important that children um, have the ability to experience and to, to test in a children's museum, and it's wonderful. But it's not the only opportunity that museums provide, and traditional museums provide a very different kind of experience um, with some crossover. The kind of experience that you get in traditional museums is around collections and the authentic object. And I think that that's what I love so much when I see a young child standing in front of, you know, a, a Yoruba crown or something and, and having a conversation about, well, what would it be like to wear that crown and, and seeing the real thing. So I think that children are inspired. They are excited about the possibilities that come with the artifacts that we see on display, whether they're, you know, the scientific, you know, um, specimens or whether they're like, you know, dinosaur bones and whatever or cultural artifacts or works of art, they all are, you know, just inspired by that. So I love the possibilities. 
one of the things that this book in reading this book really made me question uh, in my own practice and that of, of many uh, exhibit developers and designers is the, um, the assumption that young children, early learners, can only be engaged in um, you know, very specific ways uh, that, that don't really have a place in the traditional gallery. And so there's, there's been a push to create children's rooms or, or early learning rooms within the museum and, and, and almost sort of uh, um, hurting them uh, into this singular place and saying this is the place uh, where you can learn and 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 I think many of us have have uh, developed those rooms feeling and thinking that that was a good idea and you know I'm after uh, talking with you and reading your book I'm wondering uh, if maybe we have inadvertently been sending uh, mixed messages to young children and families uh, what are you, what are your thoughts on these? you know, sort of children's play areas with, within larger museums? Um, I guess the way I like to look at it is kind of in a, a sense of balance. How can we provide a wide variety of experience, experiences for children in the museum? And it's, it's you know, you know the um, beauty and the awe that just walking into one of these large museums with high ceilings and the columns and the smooth marble floors. I mean, the museum as a whole is an experience. And so I want children to have that. I want them to connect in some meaningful way um, with the collections and with the actual, the authentic objects. And sometimes it's done through the designer and sometimes it's done through the programming with an educator or a facilitator um, where they are able to bring those hands-on touchable objects that are not part of the collection but are a part of teaching collection to bring objects and artifacts to life for children and give them the sensory experience or allow play in the gallery or, you know, but in a, in a very special way. So I think that that's important for the authenticity, but I also see... Uh, a place for special spaces where you can do things, messy artwork, explorations, kinds of games that you couldn't necessarily do in, um, you know, in a, in a gallery. Um, so I think that there's room for both. And it's finding that balance that really allows children to have relevant and meaningful experiences uh, with the you know the collections in some way, so I, I like the balance. Well, uh, thank you, Sharon. It it sounds to me that what you're what you're saying is that the uh, creation of spaces should be dictated by the types of activities and uh, perhaps outcomes uh, that you want to to create, rather than the assumption that the children's room is the only place that will engage uh, young young learners and their families. Absolutely. I think, and, and each museum is different. Each, you know, at the Barnes Foundation, the galleries are relatively um, small. And so the kind of interaction that you could have with children there, you're not going to have a free-flowing um, movement of children with scarves because the space doesn't allow it. In the Hirshhorn Museum, in front of Point of Tranquility by Morris Lewis, you could give preschoolers, you know, colorful scarves and ask them to move like the painting would move if it could move because there's such a large space. So it totally depends on where you are. And then you have um, outdoor sculpture. Um, and again, another Barry Flanagan, our kids loved his works, but the drummer, which is outside on the terrace um, at the Hirshhorn Museum at the Smithsonian, you know, the children, you can bring music um, and play music and, and musical instruments, and the children can march. They can become a part of it, and they're, they are engaged with the work of art in a very respectful way. They're not touching. They're not doing anything they're not supposed to, but they are, they are 
almost jumping into the world of the art. And that's what's so exciting. And you have to, I think space is critical, as you suggest. I, I'd like to delve in a little bit further about uh, a word that we all use, but and you've used it, uh, uh, and but I think that there are a lot of misunderstandings around it, and that is the word play. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I, I think in a general sense, we think of play as, uh, you know, I don't know, blocks, Play-Doh, um, you know, playing tag, maybe, uh, you know, anything other than a video game I would call play. Uh, but mm-hmm. I, it, I, it also in reading this book, I think that you use the word play in a very specific uh, way. And uh, could you talk a little bit more about uh, how you view play and then its, its importance both in the museum as well as for uh, early, early learning development? Um, you know, play is such an important part of the early years. Uh, and if we are honest with ourselves, play should be an important part of all of our lifetime because it's the way in which we construct meaning about what we encounter and that we use our imagination. We think about the what-ifs. And so for children, they are using play to make meaning about their everyday experiences, whether it's a role play, trying to understand what is the role of an animal in the world, a, a parent, a dentist, you know, something like that. And in play, they take on these roles. And with their peers, and sometimes adults, they kind of navigate this world. They negotiate those roles, and they learn from those interactions. So they learn about kind of representation, symbolic representation in play. They pick up a block and pretend to talk on it like it's a cell phone. That understanding that an object could stand for something else is so critical in learning how to read, learning mathematical, you know, understanding and thinking. It's all of those things. And the whole notion of using our imagination, being creative, um, communicating, interacting, are, they're, they're critical life skills, engineers, artists. Without that kind of playfulness, that thinking about the possibilities, the what-ifs, wouldn't create what they create. And so while we have a somewhat negative connotation about play in the sense that we, it's often perceived as being frivolous or superficial, and it's not. It's so much more than that. But I think people have a difficult time really being able to understand and articulate what does it mean to play. And play is a process of meaning-making. And I think for me, we need to value that. And because children see the world in a way that's qualitatively different than adults, the way in which they play is also different. But it's nonetheless valuable. Well, thank you very much, uh, Sharon. Uh, you know, play, I don't think I've ever heard anyone uh, define it so succinctly that play is a type of, of meaning making. And, but as you've talked, and certainly with some of the examples uh, that you've used from your experience, I, I love the idea of young children uh, being in the Hirshhorn, uh, moving, moving like the painting would with, with scarves. Uh, I think I'd like to do that too. Uh, but, but uh, it it really suggests to me uh, even more importantly why why art museums in particular, but uh, any kind of uh, of museum that has objects that are based on human curiosity, human playfulness. I mean, I think we forget that part when we're uh, when sometimes when we are interpreting uh, whether it's an artwork or, or, or scientific achievement we forget that the person who's done it has probably come to it through a variety of ways of making meaning with their world and, and that too is a form of play mm-hmm. um, it seems to me that um, so much of 
this idea about relegating children to just certain areas of the museum or, or a museum exhibit also uh, just gets to those, those assumptions uh, or misassumptions that uh, things need to be raucous or loud or kinesthetic uh, for young children to be engaged. And, mm-hmm. and I'm not, in your book, you suggest that there are a variety of ways uh, to engage mm-hmm. young children. It doesn't have to be you know, racing around the uh, racing around the galleries. Uh, do you? I, s- uh, go ahead. I'm sorry. I, I was going to say I'm sorry. I, you know, you are uh, sparking my uh, memory at this point uh, about one of the favorite experiences that our preschoolers had by going to the Freer Gallery of Art and. I think that the paintings, there were four paintings maybe by Whistler, and they had different seasons. And so we had um, a musician who was a graduate of SEEK of our program and was now, you know, 10 or 12 years old or maybe a little older, who played um, a cello or a violin. And that student came back in and played beautiful music to go along with the paintings. And so that was in the gallery, and the children loved listening to the music and being able to identify which of the paintings um, was most appropriate for the music being played. I mean, we, they did so many wonderful things. Another uh, musician that came in played a little fife. And so, again, um, some things are really appropriate for the gallery, um, some kinds of playfulness. Um, and others are better suited to other spaces. And I remember, um, you know, quite a long time ago, I think about 1995, I had the opportunity to do some consulting in at the Walsall Museum of Art um, outside of uh, London. And they were creating, it was a very traditional art museum, and they were creating um, some kind of programming or experience for preschoolers in the museum. And ultimately, they did create a separate space for preschoolers um, to, with, that related to the works of art. What was so interesting when I went over to visit was that we saw that many adults alone, without children, would wander in and be absorbed by feeling a sculpture that had been created for touching that mirrored a sculpture in the garden, in, in the gallery, or interacting in some other way with objects in the children's space, and then going back and looking again at the actual work of art in the gallery. So it's fascinating to see this interplay between the two spaces, not only for children, but for adults as well. And so I think that it's important to keep an open mind about what the possibilities are. Yes. Oh, I love I love both of those stories, and it it suggests to me that this is uh, in creating programming for young children is is also just a, just an extension of creating programming for any type of of person. And at the core, it's helping them navigate the space and. Uh, connecting them to the possibilities of, of what they could do and think and feel in the gallery. And that's something that I think that, that uh, perhaps we don't, uh, we don't do enough of. Uh, certainly museum educators do, but I don't, I don't hear it as much in the broader discussions that perhaps we need to be having. Uh, and that, again, I feel that that's why this, this book that you have written is broader than just uh, for educators or even for uh, early learning, uh, early, early learners let's say. Yeah, I I think that it's important for us as a society to respect the fact that people learn and understand their world in different ways. And when there's only really one avenue um, or path created, and I don't mean a physical path, I mean a, a learning path within an exhibition, within a collection, you can go and you can look and you can listen to a, to a, you know, a lecture or a tape or whatever, um, that experience is perfect for some people, but not for others. So what can we add? What can we offer that's going to appeal 
to a broader audience. And this really does go back to, you know, uh, excellence and equity because we do need to think about ways to reach and connect with many different audiences, you know, and, and, and we just need to be more cognizant of that. Very, very well said, Sharon, and I truly appreciate you bringing back uh, to our collective consciousness the important work that uh, Bonnie Pittman and Ellen Hersey did in in creating uh, excellence and equity. And with that, Mm -hmm. we are going to take our next uh, second break, and when we come back, more advice from Sharon Schaefer about how we can engage young children in our museums and, by extension, a variety of audiences in our museums. Uh, Remember, uh, you can always reach me at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Let me know what you think about the show and what topics you think we should be talking about. I always like to hear from my listeners all around the world. Uh, And uh, so we will be back in a moment. This is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. Tune in Tuesdays and join the credit master and consumer advocate, Mr. D, a.k.a. Bruce J. Danielson, and learn the whole truth about credit risk scoring, collectors, both kinds, credit bureaus, credit cards, tax liens, mortgages, and much more. Find out how to use accountability combat to protect yourself from becoming a victim and to fight back against corporate abusers, such as banksters who have taken unfair advantage of most of us. The Consumer Fightback Show educates consumers on how to find relief within today's onerous credit system. See you Tuesdays, 10 a.m. Eastern, 7 a.m. Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel. American Heroes Network is a program for and about our American veteran heroes and their families. Join host Gary Ray as he shows what is being done to help our veterans and showcase the companies and organizations that are helping our veterans and their families rebuild their lives. Listen for American Heroes Network, live and powered by the Voice America Variety Channel, every Tuesday at 11 a.m. Eastern Time, 8 a.m. Pacific Time. Do you feel like you are alone in a desert? Often we feel alone with no place to turn for help and guidance in our troubles that always seem to be so overwhelming. Stop. Take an hour each week to tune in to Stream in the Desert with Dr. Rita Huang. Dr. Rita will share stories of people just like you, intended for you to find some inspiration in their problems and solutions. The most important thing is that you are not alone. Others have been in the same place. Share some time with us every Sunday morning at 9 a.m. Eastern Time, 6 a.m. Pacific, and on demand on the Voice America Variety Channel. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're tuned into Museum Life with Carol Bossert. To reach our program today, please call 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. Or send an email to carol.bossert at verizon.net. Now, back to Museum Life. Welcome back. This is Carol Bossert. Uh, You're listening to Museum Life, and we have been talking, I've been talking with Sharon Schaefer, uh, who has written a marvelous book about engaging young children in museums. Sharon is also a internationally known consultant uh, for uh, museums in uh, helping them uh, think through their programming and uh, for, for early learners. So you may want to contact Sharon uh, directly if your museum is interested in expanding uh, their programming for this audience. Uh, Sharon, so what, what are 
maybe let's say the top five things that museum professionals and you know we may even want to break it down into exhibit designers and interpretive planners as well as educators uh, should keep in mind when they want to uh, develop uh, exhibitions and and, uh, programming that engage young children well I think the most important thing to remember is that young children are far more sophisticated than most people ever believe. They have this capacity to learn. I talked a little bit about it um, when we talked about the brain research and what that has documented for us. Um, They're capable of making associations. And so whether it's in a design of an exhibition where you're creating prompts for an adult who, you know, member partner with a child or a preschool group or whatever, prompts that help them ask some kinds of questions or engage children in in the exhibition or just even in how you are thinking about programming for children. Um, One of the, you know, my experiences, my memories with a young child in a museum um, was at American History and we were walking through the museum and we stopped for a minute because this little guy was fascinated by a particular um, um, artifact. It was a gramophone. And he was looking at it, and he he was curious about it. And he said, well, what is it, and and why would the museum want it? And, And he was three at the time. And so we talked a little bit about the purpose of this object. And I said, you know, the museum always wants people to remember how we did things a long time ago. And this, you know, this was a way of playing music a long time ago. And he stopped for a minute and he thought and he said, I bet that the people who played that gramophone wore very different clothing than we wear today because people a long time ago dressed differently. Now, he had had another experience months earlier visiting, you know, American art or one of the museums and looking at paintings of how people dressed, you know, portraits. And he remembered that people a long time ago dressed differently. So here he was drawing on his prior knowledge and making a connection to this object that was a part of that time. I think that's incredibly sophisticated for a young child. So we need to give kids credit that they're going to be able to make connections if we support their learning. Um, Another, the second um, thing I think we need to remember is that we need to understand the audience. How do children learn? And the strategies that we create in terms of or that we develop to support their learning need to align with that knowledge of how children learn. So it's that blending, that alignment of theory and practice. Um, I think another thing to important, a third thing, is that less is more. Uh, How many families, how many visitors go to a museum and they want to see everything? Of course they want to see everything. But the overall experience and the memory of the experience will be far superior, at least in terms of quality, if there are fewer things that we see, but looking at them in greater depth. So when we do programming for young children, we usually select three or four, at most maybe five things to see that all have some connection to one another. And what we do is we spend some time exploring more in depth as opposed to just superficially glancing up, you know, at everything quickly. So it's less is more. A fourth thing is that I think you need to make experiences relevant. We use that word a lot. And the way I define relevance is that it really is that place of intersection between a child's world and the collection of the museum, that intersection, that sweet spot. So how do we link what something in the exhibit to a child's knowledge base, that prior knowledge? And I think it's easy to do. When you start to see and look in that way, it's easy to do. But, you know, um, do you read, you know, I'm looking, I'm at the Kuwait, you know, uh, the National Museum in Kuwait, and there's a wonderful Markor goat. And, and it's an artifact that children don't necessarily know. But when you start to talk about the story of the three Billy Goats Gruff, which is part of a child's experience, and then you look at this artifact in the collection, you're now at an intersecting point. So I think that relevance is important. And I think probably the fifth thing I would say when you, 
you know, ask for maybe five top things, is to enjoy the moment. There is nothing more exciting in the world than to watch the delight of a child discover something, to see, you know, something that's large, this large dinosaur um, skeleton, or to see something they think is beautiful in a painting, or, you know, the hat of Abraham Lincoln. I mean, kids get excited. They see an old trolley car and in, in the, you know, transportation hall. So enjoy the moment and, and just be in that moment with children and be flexible enough so that um, it develops um, intuitively rather than prescriptively. Those are great suggestions, Sharon, and and so clearly uh, presented. And it occurs to me uh, as you're you're talking that this is good advice for museum professionals, exhibit designers, anyone who is who is interested in broadening the museum experience for audiences. And it also is very important for parents. Uh, per, particularly mm-hmm. the uh, uh, enjoy the moment. Uh, I know Susie Wilkening is, is doing at Reach Advisors is doing some fascinating research on how parents influence their children's experiences in museums and the difference between a parent who is engaged in or, and sharing their passion versus a, a parent who, who is perhaps, you know, dropping their child off at a children's area and looking at their own cell phone. So it seems mm-hmm. to me that there are so many more opportunities for parents to engage in experiences with their young children in museums. And perhaps uh, uh, many young parents don't even know that the museum is a place that would welcome their 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 toddlers or their three year olds. Uh, have you do you run into that in any with any of your clients mm-hmm. that you know? Well, a l- young child could be cranky or cryy or something like that. Well, I, I think that that was certainly um, the, the message of the day when I started at the Smithsonian in 1988, um, and that that. Be- the misunderstanding that children didn't have the sophistication, lacked sophistication to be learners, to enjoy, to connect, was really um, prevalent. I think today there's still many skeptics out there and many people who don't realize that um, traditional museums offer something and, and, you know, that welcomes young children. And it's not every museum, and I think that's where we want to go to have more of this universal acceptance and universal welcoming of young children. But there are still some who have ideas from the past. And I I really remember sitting down with a parent who happened to be a curator at the National um, Gallery of Art. And he was enrolling his two-year-old daughter in our program. And so we were talking about what did it mean to have museum experiences when you were a two-year-old or whatever. And at the end of our conversation, he said, but of course you don't go to the art gallery. And I said, oh, but we do. It's probably one of the favorite places for our children. We go weekly. And so we invited that parent to come a few weeks later after to observe his daughter's class at the National Gallery. And he became one of our most ardent um, advocates. He was so enthusiastic because he saw the possibility. He saw what was happening. And so I think that when people have these ideas because they have never... Um, you know, they're kind of preconceived ideas. They're, they haven't witnessed the excitement and the possibility and the learning that takes place. And I think we've made great progress, but we still want to go forward. Well, I, I agree with you. And I think the suggestions that you've made on the show today uh, have, will have a long way in encouraging uh, uh a variety of people to look at their galleries differently and 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 provide uh, open access. I know there still is the uh, mis uh, well the assumption uh, the misinformation that young children can only learn by touching things 
and, uh, and, and perhaps that was what your your colleague at, uh, was concerned about at the art museum. And your e- examples are showing that children can learn uh, in a variety of ways, and looking at things uh, is just as active as you know, pulling levers and touching buttons. Uh, and that is uh, something that I think we all need to remember uh, in, in our museum world. And I would love to suggest that there are so many ways to bring those, those uh, sensory experiences into the gallery for children, whether it's um, a basket of objects that are teaching objects that an educator brings in, um, or whatever it might be, but using different sensory experiences, and some will be tactile, but it's not touching the artwork. It's touching the, uh, you know, a toe shoe that you bring in, you know, that an educator has um, when you're looking at Degas' Little Dancer. So you have that tactile experience, that sensory experience that children need and want, and that adults want, frankly, but yet you're doing it in a way that is so respectful of the environment and isn't, you know, in any way um, touching the, uh, you know, the works of art or the objects themselves. Absolutely. Great advice, Sharon. And again, thank you so much for being on the show today and for writing this fabulous book that I think, uh, as I said at the beginning of the show, this is a book that every museum professional should read, and frankly, I hope that parents will read uh, Engaging Young Children in Museums by Sharon E. Schaefer, uh, available through uh, Left Coast Press. And uh, so thank you for listening, Sharon. Thank you for being on the show. Uh, And I just want to thank all of my listeners for making museum life uh, within the top 10 uh, most listened to shows on on Voice America's Variety Channel. Uh, That is a thrill for me and uh, a compliment to all of you. So we will be back next week with another show. Please join us. Uh, And uh, so until then, this is Carol Bossert for Museum Life. Thank you for tuning in this week to Museum Life. Please join your host, Carol Bossert, again next Friday at 10 a.m. Eastern Time, 7 a.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Variety Channel. What museum issue is on your mind? Tell Carol at carol.bossert at verizon.net. Thanks again for listening to the preceding program brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check out additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the preceding program are strictly those of the hosts or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by Voice America Talk Radio Network its staff, and management.